Bro Show presents Doc Doc Goose, an examination of the world of sports science, medicine, and athlete management with Dr. Alice McNamara, Dr. Rod Siegel, and Bill Tate. Doc. Hello, Bill. How are you going? Yeah, not too bad. How are you going? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, ready for another one about wilderness medicine, I'm Yeah, excited. number three. Three, three of three. <laughs> well, at this stage, unless we go Do we have anything more. left to talk about? Yeah, well, this is the big one, really. I think the first two, we've, um, we've had some good discussion around um, some of our personal experience. And then obviously, we spoke to Steph Gaskell uh, the other week around some nutrition-specific strategies. But I guess... This rounds it off really nicely for me. The um, the looping back to I guess our our main engagement with with how we're involved with it and and I guess the person who sits at the centre of that. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, Doc Doc Goose is the athlete management, um, sports medicine, and sports science, and where it all comes together from a personal perspective. We've found being really interesting when you're actually trying to manage yourself in a very remote environment in the wild. Um, and, and sometimes that falls onto the individual. And, and I think in the past, they've been quite high risk events, people going out trail running, um, spending, you know, one, two, multiple day, days out in the wilderness. Um, and, and there's been some notable accidents internationally, haven't there, with uh, fatalities, um, people getting stuck in weather conditions, people not understanding the event that they're going into. Mm. Uh, and I think as more and more people head out into the wild, we've realised that you know, it's an important thing that we really solidify the first aid around. So, you know, I'm actually really excited that we've got um, our guest today who we've snagged, Deb Sharp. So, yeah, welcome, Deb. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, Deb. So, Deb's the director, the medical director of Endurance Medical Services. So, she's the founder of the company and she's the one who's the, the mastermind behind all the events and the coverage that have, we've been doing for the past couple of years. Um, yeah, so we, where wilderness medicine meets race logistics and athlete management, we couldn't think of a better person to take us through some of the behind the scenes of these events, through the planning, through the in-event in medical management of cases, um, and, and to tell us about some of the patterns and pitfalls that have happened through some of these events. We're really lucky. Deb's got a trail running background. She is a medically trained, like an ICU nurse, so critically care trained and has a, an experience race directing as well. So she's really gathered these three things yeah, it's the and perfect tied them storm together of skills. into, <laughs> yeah, I think to be an expert, you have to gather, you know, really hone experience over lots of events. So Deb spiralled this all down into a vortex where she really gets it when we're at an event. She can see what's coming where we often can't. So let's, I'm really looking forward to talking about these complex environments. Welcome, Deb. <laughs> Thank you. What an intro. <laughs> I hope I can live up to this. Uh, we've been angling to get you on for, for uh, at least a year now, so it's really exciting to actually get the chance. And yeah. off the back of the last two discussions that we've had, you know, this, this leads in really perfectly. Yeah. Deb's been spending yeah. most of her time doing COVID planning at Melbourne public hospitals and private hospitals. So. This would be a and welcome distraction, patients. maybe. So we haven't seen it for a couple of months, so this is exciting for us anyway. <laughs> it is, Bill. It is a welcome distraction. And I think, um, you know, we haven't had the opportunity to really live EMS or talk EMS and be out in the wilderness for quite some time. So it is a really refreshing change. I appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Awesome. So, I mean, we've landed at this complex intersection. Deb, tell me about your, your introduction to trail running. Like, were you always a runner when you were going through your nursing training or is this a new thing? Oh, I, I've, 
I think with a lot of people, I've had a love-hate relationship with running. Um, <laughs> there's been times in my life where it's been my absolute saviour, Bill, putting your hand up. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I've, I've always um, gravitated towards running as, as my primary form of um, exercise. But uh, one, one thing that I don't personally do very well is that whole work-life balance. Um, I tend to put all my eggs in, in 10 baskets Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a hundred percent of eggs in 10 baskets yeah. and I kind of yeah. throw everything at what I'm doing and I, uh, can sometimes fail to, um, address or prioritize my fitness first. But when I do get those opportunities and I do have those ebbs and flows of getting that balance right, then yeah, running is the one that I go to. Amazing. So you would have done some trail running before you thought about being an event director though. Yeah, very much so. Um, I, start, I, I was just road running for a long period of time and I, I remember back to, um, I think it was my uni days that I really kind of ran in school and then dropped off for a little while and then uh, picked up running in uni days again because um, it was cheap and I couldn't afford anything else. I couldn't afford gym memberships. I couldn't afford equipment at home. Um, and I, I just kind of naturally gravitate to the outdoors as well. So that was where I picked up my running again. But I never ran with anybody. I never knew anybody who ran i didn't have anyone to speak to about running um this was in the days before phones and gps tracking and all of the technology Mm. with its pros and pitfalls i so i suppose um yes i just literally enjoyed running for the sake of running never knew how far i'd gone never thought to go and map it out or do the kilometers in a car i just went until i felt like it was time to finish so i found it interesting probably about Ten years ago, got my first app on a phone, <laughs> turned it on to go for a jog and went, oh, that was 7Ks. Okay, now I've got a baseline. Uh-huh. And then uh, it just kind of went from there. And then, you know, through the app, you link up with people. Um, people introduce you to new things. I got introduced to trail and I was hooked. Awesome. Where did you first like to do your trail running? I was introduced to trail running on Arthur's seat. <laughs> oh, what a place to get started. Yeah. <laughs> Great Good place Lord. to get started. Right Great up. place to get started. But it was beautiful. It was a really, really lovely um, trail and yeah, and that was it for me. I just awesome. got onto that single track. It was a night run, first trail run, night run. Oh, cool. Um, a bunch of us decided, uh, my other half, Jared, uh, who is also four-wheel drive coordinator for EMS, uh, very kindly um, agreed to meet me over at Cape Shank and he dropped me off at Dramana and he went and got himself a burger and chips and kept himself occupied for a little while while myself and a bunch of uh, relative strangers to me at the time ran from Dramana over to Cape Shank in a replica of the Two Bays trail run. And, oh, awesome. Uh, yeah, night time and that was it. So you really love the adventure of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. I, I, yeah, it's the adventure. It's the being out, it's the being out in nature and, and being outdoors for me. Yeah, and as a medical person, a pure antidote. I've the field runner. I've always, um, I've had periods in my running career where I kind of sat towards the middle of the pack perhaps, um, but predominantly a back of the pack runner. <laughs> um, Hang on a minute. I read that you won the Machu Picchu Trail Marathon. Is that right? That's pretty front. Yeah, in a field of like 30 people. And, and International. There's still, still 29 people behind you, mate. <laughs> yeah. But in all fairness, I think they were there to try and get a lot of scenic photos. <laughs> I got none. This is not the, this is not the version of the story you're supposed to tell at the pub afterwards. Deb. I reckon the altitude yeah, struck Very them all true. down and that was you just came through. <laughs> yeah. 
Would that be uh, your most was, memorable yeah. event? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that was a that was a life goal for me. Awesome. Just, <laughs> just to see Machu Picchu and be there. Yeah. Um, not so much to run it. I just wanted to be there. But when the opportunity presented itself to run it, I just I was all over it. Yeah, awesome. Oh, we've still yeah. got to get to South America, so. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> Who knows if that'll ever happen? I'd go back in a Optimistic. heartbeat for sure. Yeah. Wow. And so off the back of that, Deb, when, when did it sort of start, when did you start to think, oh, a bit of race director stuff? Like how did that come about? And I know that you, obviously you, you almost, you're a self-made person with that in a sense, right? <laughs> she yeah, invented I, a race, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I'd just, um, I'd been running for maybe doing events. So I'd been running for a while, but I'd only been doing events for a couple of years. And, and a very good friend of mine and now someone who works with Endurance Medical Services and has been there from the start, Kaz Donovan, um, we met through um, working in healthcare together. And she said to me, come and do this event with me. And this was like a 4K in Mornington. And I, I, this is how naive I was. I actually said to her, and I said, oh, no, but I'm not a good runner. Like, I'm, I'm not a professional runner. She said, no, you don't need to be a professional runner. You just need to, to run. And I said, oh, why would they let me in? She said, no, no, you just, you pay money and you run. That was, I was so incredibly <laughs> naive and I had no idea that this whole little world existed. Yeah. Um, but I went and did that run with Kaz and then the next one and then the next one and then the next one and then, and then the distances got more and then we started to venture off and do some destination runs and then I started to see Victoria, so much of Victoria yeah. that I'd not even seen to um, before. And then we started, and then I kind of got greedy and I started looking at <laughs> destination runs and, you know, international runs and the Angkor Wat half marathon and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, got sucked right in. But I think um, I've always fancied myself as a bit of an organiser. <laughs> really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's misplaced, I think, from what I've seen. <laughs> Happy, yeah, <about> that. <laughs> I like to try and care. I think that's the ICU nurse in me. I think Alice yeah. will probably attest to that. that um, you know, you're either a hot mess or you're super organised, but very rarely can you be one of one or the other. So, um, yeah, yeah. And then I just through attending all of these events and seeing all of these events, I just kind of got a feel for it, and I thought I reckon I could do this. And so it was just the challenge that presented itself. And I started to think about it, but um, I think, in all honesty, the actual step, the first step in the process to becoming a race director, was really a fluke. So tell us that story. Tell us about Sharpie's beer run and how that started. <laughs> so that was um, approaching my birthday and, and one of my good friends asked me what I wanted to do for the day and um, I kind of said to her, I reckon we could get from, from Red Hill Brewery to Mornington Brewery. I reckon that's probably about 20K. And she said, oh, and I she said a few choice words, but um, <laughs> in the end I talked her into it in the first place. Um and then, yeah, I think, and then we just spoke and then we mentioned it to someone else and we mentioned it to someone else. And, and two weeks later, there was uh, a, a Facebook page or group that had been developed just to let everybody know that we were going to go for this run if anyone wanted to attend. And it kind of grew and it grew and it grew. And we ended up having about 45 people, I think. So I, cont- I thought I better just first, the brewery. On the first sure. one. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Awesome. This was the unofficial, so the, I think the Facebook, the Facebook terms, first the version. Fat yeah. So I uh, thought I better just contact the brewery and you know make sure make a booking. I got rooms for this, I guess. Yeah, make a booking. So I rang them up and I said, um, just checking, but we've got about 
45 runners that are going to be showing up anywhere in between 11 and 12, I'm imagining. Um, and we make a booking and that's not the outdoor tables or anything. But um, he said, shouldn't be a problem, though, if you're getting there for about 12 o'clock. And I said, okay, well, we'll be hungry. <laughs> he said, yeah, no, that's okay. We've got wood-fired pizzas and stuff. And uh, he said, I'll just take your name and number anyway. So he did. And then I uh, hung up the phone and a couple of minutes later, he actually rang me back and he said, what's this for? And I just described to him that we were going to attempt <laughs> to run from Red Hill Brewery to Mornington. <laughs> and uh, that it was just a bunch of mates and it was nothing official or anything. And he said, okay. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give a free beer to each of the runners. <laughs> really? And I said, that's, that's amazing. Thank yeah. you. That's fantastic. And uh, anyway, thanked him and hung up the phone. And then five minutes later, he rang back again and he said, can I come? <laughs> and, um, so this is now a good friend of mine, Matt Beebe, who's the uh, oh, general yeah. manager or was the general manager of, um, yeah, Mornington Peninsula Brewery at the time. Uh, yeah, and he ended up coming on the day. I made some little maps for everybody so they wouldn't get lost. Of course you did. Uh, stopped on the drive down there and we put out some just some Tupperware containers with some lollies and some water and <laughs> general aid supplies and some balloons to keep people on track and then uh, – <laughs> Yeah, we all just got to Red Hill, had a beer to kick off, and uh, we took off. And I think as everyone was, everyone was just arriving at Mornington as they got there. Um, but it kind of got to the point where the next runner had come in, and everybody had cheer, and then all of the other patrons of the brewery had just kind of joined in cheering for the sake of it, and because everyone was having <laughs> a nice sunny afternoon. And then, and then we, I had people come up and say, "How do I sign up for next year?" <laughs> That's amazing. And I think created a run. <laughs> yeah, I think it was maybe four or five beers later. We kind of looked at each other and said, "Well, this is I the guess thing. we're doing this. <laughs> it's a thing." And then Sharpie's beer run was born. Yeah, so that's an annual fun. event that anyone can check out. It's um, yeah, it's still in Red Hill, isn't it? And it's yeah, and I actually popular. think the the last COVID lockdown experience. It was like the last. It was the last event yeah. we did. I think before the Melbourne lockdown. Yeah, it so actually it was quite was. memorable, yeah. actually. Yeah. On both occasions, actually. Yep. Yeah. Twenty, the day before the twenty twenty event was the day that the pandemic was announced. The World Health Organization yeah. announced the pandemic, mm. and I had five hundred phone calls that day asking me if we were still going ahead. Yeah, <laughs> just snuck it in. Glad we did. Yeah, and last year again we snuck in in between a couple of lockdowns as well. So yeah, we've been fortunate. And so Deb. Obviously, you're running yourself. You set up your own race, and then I think I think you were then helping out using your, um, I guess, your medical expertise in a few races after making friends with some race directors. Was that sort of the way that sort of started? Yeah, that was. I I, I actually got I injured myself um, just through you know silly training, I guess, um, or overtraining and and not appropriate training. Um, and during that time when I was injured, I, I had a race that I was looking forward to, which was, uh, ultra trail Australia, the hundred. Mm. Um, but because I was injured, I couldn't run in that. And I, I, you know, still had my accommodation booked and my trip booked. Um, and I still wanted to be part of it. And I thought that would be the best way to help myself get over the fact that I couldn't race it myself. Um, so I volunteered on the first aid crew for that event. Uh, and then that led to volunteering on a few others, you know, on, on during periods when I wasn't particularly trained to enter an event or or 
yeah, just to give back, I think, to the running yeah. community yeah. Um, and, and offer my skills in that respect. Um, and then through doing that um, and also attending some, you know, being an entrant in some events, um, I think I just started to see uh, an opening there or an opportunity there to really escalate the level of service um, that can be provided for these events. And I, I also started to venture off road into trail and then I got into more remote areas mm. and then I got into the super remote areas um, and started to really have an appreciation for the severity um, mm. of, of injuries and illnesses that can happen out there um, and the absolute scale of logistics that's required to assist one person who might do something very simple. What you would think is very benign as a broken ankle becomes uh, almost an astronomical task to to mount a response to that when you're in a super remote area. So when I started to see all of those pieces come into place um, and, ha- and having an appreciation for, as a race director, for what's my liability as a race director? What's my duty of care? What's mm. my uh, due diligence here? How do I make sure I'm looking after my runners um, at the same time? How can I... S- how can I put this event on and make it cost effective? I can't pay for Royal Flying Doctor Service type, yeah. type of um, type of cover. So when I had to look at all of those things, I thought there must be a way to to bridge this gap and keep the trail running community as safe as possible. There's always going to be risk, but there had to be a way to mitigate that risk um, and just to offer longevity to the sport. Oh, this is where I was really hoping to get to, Deb. So, uh, you, when you your eyes are open to the risks, and I think because you've got the clinical background in a hospital, you can kind of recognise, you know, if something was to go wrong here, how would we manage this in a different environment? Well, now we're in a really remote environment. I think that that's an insight that not everyone has when they go out into the wilderness. So, I really wanted to get to this point. Um, so, tell me about the background. So, you've gone through nursing as a, a background you've done critical care nursing which is people I've, I've noticed you tend to gravitate to that if you really want to be prepared in a situation where something goes wrong um, so you've done the critical care stuff you've also then taken a leadership role in your ICU you know clinical nursing your liaison nursing running um, met calls and in your medical your emergency team responses when you're called out to the ward to manage situations on the ward so tell me a little bit about that journey and, and how you always sought out continual learning opportunities through your clinical career. Oh, I think, yeah, like you said, Alice, I've always gravitated towards those critical care type roles and I think just the natural career progression for me was um, I trained very early in advanced life support and that led to me becoming an instructor in advanced life support yeah. um, and then the, the continuous consolidation of that knowledge by imparting that onto others and, and, and running training courses for that. Um, that led to my transition into the role that I currently do now, which is an IC liaison nurse. Yep. Uh, so in that role, my primary responsibility is um, a resource for the entire hospital um, for recognising and responding to deteriorating patients. Yep. So managing medical emergency calls and managing uh, code blue calls. Um so I kind of live and breathe the, you know, what you would call the most stressful type of medical events on a daily basis. Mm. Um, I think for me, right, if I go right back to the very beginning of it, um, I think to get rid of any fear about something is just to make it your friend. Absolutely. Um, make it common, make it, make it your best friend. Just know it inside out, back to front and upside down, and then the fear factor's gone. Yep. 
um, so for me, that's, I think, what drove me to that. I remember being a student and being in my first arrest and having the, um, the privilege and the opportunity to watch some really great operators and wanting to emulate them. Um, so that drove me towards that type of response. And I think ever since then, I've just had that attitude of um, have a plan B, have a plan C and a plan D. And, you know, that's your insurance policy that you probably won't need them. Oh, then, then you would have rolled into, you know, in a, in a trial running situation where you've got more than one patient potentially, or you've got the the capacity or the potential for, you know, bigger things to go wrong, environmental problems or, um, you know, communication downfalls or things like that. So, uh, tell us about the the MIMS course and how you decided that maybe that was something that you'd go into. Oh, yeah, yeah. So MIMS um, is Major Incident Medical Management and Support, um, and that's a, that's a course that's run um, predominantly for uh, defence. It teaches them, and, and it's run for ambulance officers and it's run for Department of Health um, and members of um, human services and things like that. So it teaches you how to uh, respond to major catastrophes, how to set up your um, staged preparation areas, uh, how to set up your triage areas, um, how to triage appropriately. Um, yeah. I think the definition of any major incident um, is something that overwhelms your resources. And I think that's the number one thing yeah, that right. factors into endurance medical services is if I can try and translate the two, you could have a trail running event for 100 people in Bright. And if 25% of those people need to present for medical treatment, whatever it might be, it might be very benign medical treatment, uh, but if they need to present for broken limbs or, um, you know, wound dressings or perhaps some IV hydration or anything else like that to an area of bright, then they're going to overwhelm that one little tiny urgent care centre. Yep. Versus if you're in metropolitan Melbourne and you have 25% of, 100, you know, 100 people in an event presenting, that's really not going to be too much of a blip on the radar. Yep. So your major incident is whatever overwhelms whatever resources you've got. And I think for EMS, that's our major, I think the thing that we factor into most is we will do a critique um, and a survey of the area, you know, that we're providing coverage for, what the local area provides, what medical support is around, where the nearest tertiaries hospitals are, what they offer. You know, do they have a maternity service? Because you often have spectators at events (laughs) who are pregnant. So we have to think about all of that. We think about the runners, we think about the event crew, we think about the spectators and we think about the resources around that local area and what can we provide to give that cover to the medical directors, to provide the level of cover that the runners need, uh, but at the same time try and mitigate risk and reduce the impact on local resources so that the local person who needs those services has those services readily available to them without delay. Yeah, 100%. And so, so Deb, you, you've got all this experience. You you run your own event. You start doing a little bit of this um, medical support in some other major events, and you see you see and well, it's not so much a niche. You you just see some opportunity to to maybe do this in a really effective way and build a team around it. Um, and obviously, you mentioned Jared before. Obviously, he's in there as a. Um, as a, uh, a a fellow kindred spirit in the wild, I suppose, in, in a sense. And at, at what stage do, do you guys think, well, you know what, because it's not a small investment. Obviously, you talked about the time that it takes to consider all of the things you've got to look at to even 
think about walking into an event, let alone the actual uh, resources you've got to have to do that effectively. Um, at what point do you and Jared go, you know what, okay, let's start thinking about what it would take to build this out and, and how did you go about that? <laughs> yeah, I honestly don't know. <laughs> I, I don't even think I could pinpoint, you know, when we had that conversation. I think it was just a series of little conversations yeah. that ended up kind of progressing to it. And, and I think, I think in all honesty, I was, it was simmering away in the back of my mind for quite some time. And I had mentioned it to a few race directors um, and then the call started to come from race directors. I started yeah. to have race directors saying to me, come on, you know, or, or race directors would say to me, the first ad guys I booked have just cancelled on me last mm-hmm. minute. Can you help me out? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then I started to look into, okay, well, what would it take for me to help these guys out? Yeah. Can I just pack a kit for myself and go and stand there? What, what, yeah. uh, am I going to be liable? Yeah. What type of risk am I putting myself at? What's my professional level of liability or cover? Um, so when I started to dig into all of that, I started to research that and find out, um, you know, what the logistics are or what the, um, I don't know the word I'm looking for, what the legalities are. I think yeah. when I started to look into all of that, this kind of started to grow a little bit more in my mind and it started to seem feasible and possible. Um, and then I think, you know, just one day I came home and started looking on uh, a few websites for the type of products that I would need. Um, you know, I mean, in a hospital, I have this stuff readily available to me, but I never have yeah. to purchase yeah. it. So when I started to look at, okay, well, if I was going to do this, I would need this and this and this. How do I buy these things? Mm. So I started to look up, are these things readily accessible to me? Can I get them easily or do are they, you know, do they need to be procured from overseas and all mm. that kind of stuff? And then everything just started falling into place and I started to see that it was going to be feasible. And I think I, Jared came home from work one day and I'd made a few little purchases (laughs) (laughs) and showed him, you know, a picture of a trailer that I thought would be a suitable medical base. And then I kind of said that, you know, from a legal point of view, the the professional indemnity and public liability was a possibility and that we could do with these things. And, and I'm really very, very fortunate that I think Jared's just the most trusting person in the world. Um, and also, you know, it wasn't that hard of a sell. I pretty much told him that we were going to get to go camping every weekend. And, yeah, you know. he hates it. Yeah. It <laughs> I've been out with him. He really struggles. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, so talk us th- through uh, that thought process of how you got started in terms of the trailer and, you know, the, the basic um, the first aid equipment that you need to manage airway, breathing, circulation, um, environmental management. There's a lot. If you start to make a list, you can sort of draw the line somewhere and go, well, I'll look after someone to this point. But we're going pretty remote here. So what does that all entail? What do you need to take with you when you take a team out? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, and again, I think that's something that, that it alters significantly depending upon your environmental factors, the area where you're going, um, transit time. Yep. You know, we could be going into uh, a state forest, but the reality is that you could reasonably have uh, an injured person at a tertiary care facility within half an hour. Mm. Um, So that that changes the way that you look at things and it changes what you need to carry. We've had, I mean, Alice and Bill, you guys would know, we've been at events where we've we've had snow, Um, And we haven't had indoor capacity to try and warn runners, warn, excuse me, 
platform runners. Yeah. <laughs> so we, um, you know, we have uh, forced air warmers to provide heating. Uh, we have to try and keep the trailer hot. We have to think about things like some of our equipment uh, that we would normally use in a hospital setting. It's not very happy and it doesn't want to work in, in two degrees yeah. out in the middle of Lerderderg State Forest. So yeah. a simple thing like a tympanic thermometer won't work well. Um, you know, but at the same time, we don't want to be doing core rectal temperatures on runners, you know, out in the middle of a paddock. <laughs> so there's a lot of little intricacies and things that you need to deal with. Um, I think the main thing about EMS is everyone, the people who kind of gravitate towards EMS and the people who we love to embrace and take on board just have that common sense, critical thinking ability, um, a calm and coolness under pressure and good open communication skills. Yeah. Um, so what I then do is I look at the equipment, I look at where we're going and I go, right, our primary goals here are to get out on course and get eyes on runners as quickly as we possibly can. So we have a staged approach where we want to send out a very basic kit. We want to make it easy for a member of the team to get out there and do a rapid assessment on the patient. Eyes on the person is really the main thing that we want first up and foremost. And just your very basic uh, equipment, so diagnostic equipment to get a blood pressure, heart rate, saturations, um, some primary wound care management, um, and even just, you know, a, a pen torch to do um, a gross neuro exam if that was necessary. Yeah. So just your very basic equipment in that primary kit to get out there and do a rapid response. And that kit could go out with a first aider, it could go out with a registered nurse, it could go out with a paramedic, or it could go out with a doctor that decision will be determined based on who's the nearest nearest to pin really is the way I like mm. to think about it. Um, but the beauty of it is, is we'll maintain communications with either radio or sat phone and the person on the other end of that radio or sat phone will be an advanced clinician. So whether a quick care nurse or a doctor who knows how to guide the other person through an assessment. So has that ability to sit on the other end of the radio or the sat phone and just talk that first hater perhaps at the other end through being their eyes and ears and just allowing them to gather the information on uh, that will allow a triage. So how do we triage? Are they walking wounded? Uh, do Can we get them out safely with assistance, either via a mule litter or uh, assisted ambulation? Or um, is this a critical event and we need to get this person out of here and evac in a time critical manner? Yeah, beautiful. So, yeah, the equipment really surrounds that. And I think, you know, we have our rapid response kit that goes out with that primary person. Uh, and then we have a secondary kit, which is um, the bunking, really. So we can, if we've got someone who's going to be out there for a little while and it's going to take a while to expedite an evacuation for them or perhaps it's inclement weather and a chopper can't fly to come and get them, then we have the height kit that can go out. And it will take a little longer to get the height kit out to them because it does carry a little bit of weight. But we can put them in a sleeping bag. We can put them in a bothy tent. Uh, we can provide them shelter. Uh, we can try and keep them as warm as possible and we can kind of extend that primary level of care yeah. uh, until someone else can get there. And then we obviously have everything that we keep at med-based as well. Yeah. So, and, yeah, just a stepped approach really. And it's, it's, it's like a network as, you just, as you're describing there. And I think that's some of the listeners who are actual trail runners might not um, – might not uh, appreciate or, or have as clear understanding as to the as to the network that's surrounded. So it's you know there's obviously a, a base where um, where everything's based out of, and then there's a network of people deployed at various locations. But that net that network is interwoven so that you know wherever the 
wherever the expertise is, it, it can be virtually deployed to other locations over whatever communication needs to happen to help manage that situation. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, yeah, we just interlace our clinicians across the course and we look at things like that's a, particular, a particularly treacherous section of course. We anticipate we're going to see some wrists or ankles yeah. or whatever it might be down that area. So who's the best person for me to put there? Who can strap a wrist? Who can strap an out? Who can strap a ankle? Or you know, um, yeah. So we're always thinking along those lines about who is the most suitable person to be out in that area, and that's how we structure our teams. We will always we need to find the balance there because we need to make this as cost effective as we can for race directors. We all yep. know that the sport um, it's not a millionaire sport, <laughs> mm. so the race directors do it out of passion and love for the sport. Um, and we need to make it cost effective for them. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we provide the appropriate level of cover um, and that all our members of the team are covered as well. So our first aiders have the appropriate clinical surveillance. Um, our nurses have the appropriate clinical surveillance as well. So um, talk a little bit about the team that you build. And obviously, as you mentioned, Deb, it changes event to event. But if we imagine a typical multi-day uh, or an event that that runs maybe a couple of races over several days and it's relatively wild what are you what are you looking for in your the mix of the team of of human beings um that you like to put together i am have been and continue to be so incredibly lucky uh with the team that we have for ems um we are never short of people who put their hand up and want to come and and just be out there with us um and the, just the people who naturally kind of gravitate towards doing this work, I couldn't really ask for anything more. Um, my main criteria are just have a willingness to learn uh, and open ability to communicate. Um, that has to be first and foremost because 100% of everything that we do out there relies on good team communication. Yeah. Um, You've said that and, about four times tonight as well, <laughs> I reckon, yeah. subconsciously or consciously. Yeah, but but – Truly, that really is at the crux of everything that we do. And, you know, you could have 10 people working in one room in a code blue scenario and you're in the one room and communication can break down. So imagine how badly that communication can break down when you're spread across 100 kilometres. Yeah. So that can be considerably um, difficult. So having that, um, you know, people who are open and able to communicate effectively and, and just appreciate that when we are out there, we do have to operate as per a chain of command so that there is closed loop communication and so that we don't have um, people operating when it's unbeknownst to what's going on at Medbase yep. um, and we don't have people moving off course or moving away from where we think our chess pieces are. Mm. Um, having that ability to keep everybody on track, um, yeah, really is at the crux of everything that we do. Um, and the that team is- that we have... Um, First and foremost, I think everybody just loves being outdoors. That's the one passion that we all have, um, you know, in common. And you don't have to be a runner. You don't have to be a trail runner to come and work with EMS. Um, just just a love for being outdoors and a love for, I think, just seeing that human endeavour and seeing people challenging themselves as well um, and being there to support everybody and just generally just getting outside and having a really good time, um, helping people 
I mean, a lot, a lot of the times we could go and attend an entire event and we only put a couple of Band-Aids on, but we still invest considerable amount of time and energy just in encouraging and cheering the runners on and offering them that reassurance that we are there if they need us. Um, so sometimes that can be just as beneficial to a runner as, as blister management. Yeah, I do think that's something that, that in the in the limited number of times I've had the opportunity to be part of it, that comes through really strongly is that people uh, get confidence from knowing that there's an there's quite a evident um, uh, network of support there if something did go wrong, that it's not that it's um, yeah. not, yeah. not half baked if you like, that it's quite mm. um, in the first episode of this series, Bill and I did a little bit of um, – uh, we played some video from Hut to Hut, which was one of the events from this year. And we talked a lot about this happened and the radio back to Medbase because we didn't have any phone reception, which is very common, no no mobile phone reception where, where one of the sites was. And the UHF radio was the communication loop. And so it would go back to Medbase. Medbase would relay back that they confirmed that they received the message and that it would either be passed forward along the course to the next point along the run or it was towards the afternoon, you know, further down the course. And so there was always this sense of, at that location, we've got this incident, but then how does that fit into the global network of what's going on on the whole course? Because it's up to the med base, the chain of command, whoever's the medical director who's running the show to decide where they need to deploy their team. So sometimes there was often a leapfrog effect where you might need to follow the, the race along along a certain area of trail. And, and that was really important that Medbase had almost a visual of where the team was at any one point if you could map it out on a map so that we were covered. Mm. And I think that, that that confidence that everybody knows that someone's doing this at this location, therefore I need to cover this here, um, That that's part of feeling supported and the communication oh, that's the chess. That's the chess pieces yeah. that I think Deb was talking about as the medical director. That's, Absolutely. That's what you're sitting back having to manage yeah. and... Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And you're also sometimes um, there are events that happen that we don't relay over the radio for either privacy reasons mm. or, or um, you know, because when we are out there, we are using open frequencies. Um, so there are some things that the medical director will be across uh, that some members of the team may not be across. But for that reason, the medical director can say, happy for you to sit in place. Uh, I'm going to move another another piece of the puzzle. Um you know, and it might not be clearly evident from for the team out there uh, why that decision was made, but you know the reassurance is there that the med director is across something else, perhaps that could be happening further upstream or or further back in the field, yeah. um, and you know, and and also a skill mix thing as well. So um, it might be that I want to keep you yeah. there because I'm anticipating something else going on, and that's yeah. more where the clinical need is versus up here. I've got a more junior team, but I know I can get another clinician to you um, in a reasonable time frame. So, yeah, it's exactly as you were saying, Alice, the leapfrogging effect, moving the chess pieces to where it's most appropriate for everybody to be. Um, and then you add that whole other layer of complexity, which is where Jared comes in, in terms of how do we move around mm, access the yep. wilderness? How do yeah. we move in and out of these areas? Um, how do we safely move people? I mean, the guys on, on foot are, are moving you know, they're much safer, but albeit much slower. But, um, you know, we've got to get vehicles in and out of some of these places. Mm. Um, and what's the safest way to do that? And, you know, having Jared there who, you know, ha has all these maps almost virtually downloaded into his brain, um, he has that capacity to know not just can I drive that road, but what kind of vehicle is appropriate to drive that road. I don't 
you know, we have a runner who's just done an ankle and could be transported back in a vehicle, but we don't want that runner's crew member driving down there because mm. they're in a they're in a Subaru, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's not going to be appropriate. Yeah. And we can anticipate then that not only are we going to have a runner with a busted ankle, but now we've got a crew member who's stuck. Yeah. And that becomes a whole other complexity again. Absolutely. So, and yeah, I guess that that's, extra ability. That's what you've um, – what impresses me about the team that you've assembled is – and it's, you know, you've got a very big mix of skills from, you know, like I'm the lowest skilled person there by far, right up to – No, you are not. <laughs> <laughs> we have, have doctors, um, obviously. You can edit a, that out, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> there's always a, a doctor um, – in most of the major events anyway. Um, but then you've got um, highly capable people who are very good mobile on their feet, you know, like um, we ha- we have as part of the team, um, you know, whether they're nurses or, you know, a dentist, for instance, <laughs> with, with fir- yeah. wilderness first aid skills who are capable of, do- of incredibly good endurance on their legs with a pack yeah. and, and, and they'll do some incredible things just like you, good you'll stamina have. Good stamina and good clear thinking under, you know, a lot of duress, I think. Some of our Absolutely, team are good yeah. to spending all yeah. day out there yeah. just watching other runners, just making sure everyone's all right. Yeah. Yep, and, absolutely. And then you've got um, a group, you've got um, people who are, you know, they might be paramedics or, or again, just wilderness first aiders who, um, you know, are very good in a four-wheel drive and know how to get somewhere. And, yeah. and there's a, there's always you, – you, t- you seem to put together a mix of that for every event. So you've got deployable, you've got all all bases covered at, at one yeah. part or another, um, yeah. which must take a lot of work to figure that out. Uh, but in all honesty, Bill, it, the planning does. So thinking about – the ingress and egress and looking at surveying the area for the tertiary facilities and all of that kind of stuff. But the team, the team is the easiest because we are just so incredibly lucky. We've got such a beautiful pool of people to, to, to ask, you know, who, who just come running and put their hands up and are happy to jump in and get involved. I so think that's, um, yeah, team it's not, is never something that I have to worry about. It's not, it's not as seamless though. Like I think you do do a very good job, um, when you've got your team and they've volunteered and they're there, you're actually really good at, at doing an active, always a constant assessment of resources and, and what needs to go where. So where you deploy a resource out for a rescue, for example, that they're off, they're, they're factored out for a while and everything else needs to expand to fit the area that's left. And I think that that's a constant work in progress. So you might have your perfect team, but if it only takes a couple of incidents at, at the same time, I think we, we've found at most of our yeah, events correct. that it can be very quiet for a while and then everything mm. happens at once. And so that's yep. the skill about resource deployment when you need it. Yeah, 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 that's very true. And it does, you're absolutely right, it, it often happens that we, you know, don't have nothing for quite some time and then all of a sudden it all it all comes down at once. Mm. Um, but again, I think that the thing about that is just having a team that stays cool, stays calm and, you know, at the moment, these are the resources that we have. This is what's required of us. Mm. And blisters go to the back of the pack. Mm. And <laughs> yeah. the more serious illnesses and things move to the front of the pack. And you just, every stage, you re-triage, you reassess. Yep. You so what kind of things go in your triage categories, Deb? Your triage categories. Oh, talk about the triage yeah. categories? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, yeah, I think I alluded to them before. It really is just a case of... Um, 
how do we mobilise this person to get them back to definitive management? Um, and really our triage category number one, which is our, our top triage category or CAT1, is um, that's an immediate. So it's a threat to life or limb. Um, so threat to life or limb means we need to expedite either a helicopter evacuation um, or a road car evacuation to intercept or to meet at an intercept point where Ambulance Victoria can take over um, and we can hand the patient off to the ambulance, uh, ambulance services. Um, and then the next step for us is um, assisted ambulation or an evacuation of sorts. Um, and we have to think, this is where we have to think very heavily about is it safe to put someone in a vehicle? Because we can only put someone in a vehicle if they can be in a seated position. They have to be able to be seated with a seatbelt on. Yeah. So if we have anyone who's injured who can't, who needs to be kept supine, which is laying flat, then they are going to have to go via Ambulance Victoria. Um, or if they are in the bush, then they will have to be transported out in uh, the mule, which is a single all-terrain wheeled litter, uh, so that we can keep them supine. And then at the next available point, they'll be handed off to Ambulance Victoria for a supine transfer. Mm. Um, so in that in that yellow category for us, that Cat 2 category, that's a really big category because we might – it could take us an hour to walk someone with a severely sprained ankle two kilometres yeah. Yeah. to get them out to a checkpoint. And when you – okay, so now all of a sudden we've considerably slowed down in speed for that person They've been running and sweaty and now they're wet and they've gone from high metabolic demand to low metabolic demand. They're going to get cold very, very quickly. You're probably on a ridge line <laughs> most of the time <laughs> considering where we go. Um, so not only are we now going to take an hour to ambulate someone out with a sprained ankle, but you've still got to navigate over hard terrain. So there's the risk of further injury. There's the risk of falls, slips and trips. Um, I've got to make sure my team are going to be okay and I don't want my team taking on the burden of trying to carry someone or putting themselves or their backs or their shoulders or their arms in risk. Mm. Um, and you've got to manage exposure and you've got to manage just time out there on your legs. So, you know, has that person now got pain that's starting to affect their vital signs? Are they, are they becoming tachycardic? Are they becoming hypotensive? Is the pain starting to get too much? What, is it safe to administer analgesia? Is it not? Um, you know, on the side of a football field for a sprained ankle, you might have no problem going ahead and administering, administering something, say, like methoxyfluorone. Um, but if we're two kilometres on a ridgeline uh, and there's a significant downhill, for example, mm. um, then I'm not going to give someone methoxyfluorone to manage the pain because I need that person to be able to continue moving for another two kilometres with me yep. with reasonable um, headspace. So, so mm. much more to consider um, in that kind of yellow yeah. Cat two phase. Absolutely. Um, and then, of course, we just get to the green, which is the walking wounded. <laughs> and oftentimes they can be recovered um, maybe just a couple of minutes and maybe 15 minutes surveillance or something. Um, check their vital signs, offer some reassurance. It might just be that they had perhaps overcooked or gassed themselves for a little bit and just a bit of a rest period with some supervision is enough for them to get back up and moving again. Mm. Um, or it might be that they make the call that they want to withdraw or they've got blisters that they can't continue on or, you know, toenails or sprains or, or pre-existing injuries or something like that. And for that reason, they're okay. But they're usually, um, if we can get a crew member to come and pick them up, then they can be transported out that way. And Deb, my experience is one of the hardest things is it's very easy when you're out there to get sucked into um, that green category um, and spending yes. a lot of time there. And I feel, I actually feel one of the things that you do quite well is remind us, to not 
not leave enough energy reserve because there's going to be yellows coming any minute sort of thing. Um, And I I think that that's been one of the things that I've taken out of it is, you know, that there are people where the more attention you give them, the bigger the problem becomes, whereas sometimes they just need a little bit of attention, maybe some reassurance and some time and a little bit of observation rather than actual jumping right into things. Well, you're always assessing the greens like if I don't patch these people's feet up, they're going to spend another two hours out here today. And that might be what cooks them at the end of the day. So you're actually yeah. trying to prevent a yellow in the future by helping these people through in the short term. Yeah. So yeah. I, I don't see, and, and we don't, we do a lot of little management, but it's all about yeah. the Band-Aid is actually a really effective tool. Um, you know, it, metaphorically, I think Malcolm Gladwell said it once as well. Mm, it's like yeah. a Band-Aid serves a really good purpose because it off, often prevents problems down the track and so if we can patch something up quickly for someone or help them do it then we we do mm. save a problem yeah. later on but yeah like inevitably what, i do like people. what you were saying though alice in that help them do it um yeah. and i think that's maybe what bill was getting at in that i do try to remind the team that um like let's like say for example these guys are out there doing 50k 100k 42k runs in order to be able to, out, to be out there doing that, they've at least done 20 to 30K training runs yeah. where they didn't have any medical support and would have had to have dealt with their own blisters and hot spots and, and niggling knees and niggling ankles and things like that. So there is a certain amount of onus that does need to come back onto the runners. Mm. Um, and I do, you know, sometimes, um, it, it, again, it just comes down to triaging. If you've got a bunch of presentations that have presented to your uh, your first aid checkpoint or your med base or wherever it might be, and some of them are grazers, um, which in reality we know they all look worse because sweat mixes with blood and it mm. makes it look like it's exsanguinating. Mm. <laughs> when yep. in reality, when you just wash it off with a little bit of water, you can barely even see where the abrasion is. So, um, you know, sometimes it is just a case of going, okay, well, you know, if this person was out there doing a training run and they fell and they did that, they would probably just continue running until they got home and then they'd have a shower. Yeah. But when that gets translated into a race, all of a sudden they need medical attention. So yeah. sometimes you just have to weigh it up and go, okay, I've got the time to give to this person at this particular moment. That's not a problem. But if I've got competing priorities coming in and I've got yellows coming in, then, you know, just suggest that they give it a clean themselves and that it's, you know, it's not too bad and they can keep moving. So it, 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 it does always just boil down to that um, management of resources and triaging. Yeah, and that's a big part of, the, I reckon, the, the medical director's role is to re- just keep reminding people about that and keep people on track. It seems, yeah. it seems to be something that, that you pay a bit of attention to. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, just because you're always thinking in the back of your brain that, you know, um, it's like an emergency. We want to try and get the decks cleared because you never know when the next big thing yeah, is going to come in. Yeah, yep. you know. So you're always thinking about having that surge capacity underneath, um, you know, so that you're not getting bogged down in in too much of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. We have jumped around a little bit on my list. I was going to ask you all about the different factors that come into an EMS management and event, and I think we've talked a little bit about the equipment. We've talked a little bit about the triage category. A big part of it that you deal with that we don't always see is the interaction between the race director who designs the course, it's their run, and your medical team. So tell us how that that conversation evolves and starts and and what do they want to know from you and what do you need to know from them? Oh, that's good. Um, 
look, again, very lucky to work with a lot of race directors. And I think most of the race directors that we work with, I knew them as friends and race directors before EMS. Um, So I had established those relationships just from a race director perspective anyway. And and just having that appreciation for what they go through in trying to stage an event, Mm. um, I think that makes those conversations flow a lot easier um, because I appreciate that they're trying to get their permits the first thing first and foremost so they've got to lay out their course then they need to apply for permits to either parks victoria or local council or local governance there's probably road crossings that are in there that have to be dealt with which means traffic management plans uh there's insurance obviously that comes into it then they've got to try and man a volunteer workforce um, and have volunteers out there cutting the watermelon and the oranges and the bananas and running the aid stations um and then, you know, and then they've got all of the other things. They've got the advertising, the marketing, the, uh, you know, the, the merchandise um, and, and just the communications with runners is phenomenal. Um, you know, if you've got a 500-person event, um, best guess, probably 100 to 125 of those runners will send fairly frequent emails. <laughs> um, you know, Oh, should I be wearing trail shoes? Should I be wearing road shoes? Have you got gluten-free watermelon at the aid station? Are you going to have apples because I don't like bananas? So there's a lot of, you know. The old gr- sure gluten-free watermelon always gets there's a good a lot run. Of, uh, <laughs> yeah, so there is, there is quite a lot of um, PR, I guess, for race directors as well. <laughs> there might be some trail runners listening to this that might be thinking, oh, yeah, yeah. I do I send a few emails, I do get a bit funny about that. I don't yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm that guy. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, you know, it adds up. It adds up yeah. a lot for a race director. And a lot of race directors are, are working a Monday to Friday or a nine-to-five job, you know. Yeah. This is a – this is a, a it can be quite invasive when you've got, you know, considerable amount of those communications to keep up with. Um, so, yeah, in, in, in understanding all of that, I have those conversations with race directors about um, – what do they need for me and what are their expectations? And we do tend to sometimes jump in there and do a lot more than what a medical service would provide. Um, you know, we can double up and assist at an aid station, you know, if yeah. we understand, you know, because we'll have an understanding that they might be struggling for volunteers and things like that. And, and it's a mutual understanding. The race directors appreciate that our job first and foremost is the first aid. And if, if you know, if all else fails, then people have to get their own watermelon. But, um, <laughs> but we can help out and we can do things like that. If, if we need a particular point on course marshalled because it's a decision point on course, for example, um, or if there's a river crossing that the, the race director would normally place a marshal at, then I, we can, you know, well, obviously a river crossing is also a really great place, place for us to have someone stationed as well so yeah. our people can double up and things like that. So the race directors and I will communicate with um, – the course, and we'll just talk about the course proper, what the sticking points are, what the decision points are, potential pitfalls or areas where people might go off course. Um, we'll talk about alternate arrangements. Um, for yeah. example, if some tracks are closed for seasonal closures or if there's been fire damage or um, if there's trees down or if there's a king tide. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we have those conversations about alternate arrangements Um and then I will survey all of that information and I'll go back to them with a recommendation for how many um, people should form the medical team and where I want to position them. 
Um, and sometimes there's a bit of back and forth because they've got obviously the absolute expert knowledge and, and in-depth um, understanding of the course. And between us, we just work together and we come together with a with a plan for how we're going to support the event. Um, and a lot of that also involves talking about um, times that we anticipate people are going to be out there for. Yeah. You can always yeah. place a guess. Um and you can anticipate that the front of the field are going to finish in approximately this time, and you can anticipate that the last run is going to come through at this time. But what happens if the front of the field move a lot quicker than you anticipate and the back of the field are moving a lot slower than you anticipate? And when that happens, all of a sudden the logistics that you had confined to this area and the leapfrog plan that we've mapped out now has to completely change ad hoc because there's just been such a massive spread of times that we didn't anticipate. So that's one of the things that we have to consider as well. Um, but we're really lucky with the race directors that we do work for because we work with them on the fly often yeah. um, and we engage and we check in frequently throughout the course of the event to let them know that we're, we're changing our plan in this direction um, and sometimes they'll come to us and say, I need help here and we'll do what we can to affect that. Mm. Yeah, so working, we're very lucky with the race directors that we work with. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a close relationship on the day as well, isn't it? Because um, there's there's obviously a, a imperative, and and they want the show to go on, and then there's decisions that have to be made around safety at times, and I guess that's where it's critical that you guys have an open and clear line of communication <clears throat> and understanding. And one of the things we wanted to to just touch on because it's it's something that people often ask about is the lightning lightning protocol, lightning policy, lightning protocols. Um, and it's probably, a, you know, it's a good, it's a good area to segue off onto, I think possibly Deb, because that's an area where the race directors will have to defer at times to, to the, um, medical director, I suppose, around, um, the situation. Can you, but, but at, at the coal face, the competitors will quite often not have any understanding as to the depth of understanding of conversations and considerations that are happening elsewhere to try and figure out what needs to happen at that point. So can you talk to us a little bit about, A, in general, what the Lightning Protocol is and, and B, the process that, that you will go through as, in this instance, the medical director with the race directors to reach that decision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think... Since we've been doing this, twice we've enacted a lightning protocol um, and both times, um, you know, the weather wasn't or the weather did change quite significantly and spontaneously. Um, so we did have to act fairly quickly in order to um, get that lightning protocol happening. Uh, the reason we have lightning protocol in place is because obviously um, the safety around uh, being outdoors in a lightning storm, um, especially in alpine areas uh, and remote areas and on top of ridgelines um, and in areas of dense bushfire, uh, bush and things like that, it's not just for the risk of lightning. It's obviously and, – and sometimes I think that runners think that, oh, I'm not going to get struck by lightning and I'm okay. It's not a big deal. Um, but the appreciation isn't there for how very, very quickly lightning can strike and spark bushfire. Yeah. And then, of course, how rapidly that bushfire can move. Um, and when you are out in those remote mm-hmm. areas, the limited roads and opportunities to evacuate people mm. um, and oh, just the sheer number of people that you've got out there on course and the logistics of being able to move and shelter that amount of people um, is absolutely phenomenal. So it's not, yes, we have concerns about there being a lightning strike, 
Um, but the predominant concern is more about there being a being a fire that either prevents ingress or egress, um, and you know then significantly impacts how we medically manage and cover the rest of the course. Yeah. Uh, so when we activate lightning protocol, we're looking at uh, the storm coming across the area that it's traversing. Um, we're looking at the leading area before the storm, and we're looking at the lead, the area trailing the storm as well. We need to see, once we activate, we make the decision to activate a lightning protocol. We ask all runners to take uh, shelter as, as in the safest place available to them. And we usually provide a medical briefing before an event, um, which gives them some information. And I, I like to start handing out a PDF of information for runners when they're going into those uh, that type of territory. Mm. Um, just so they appreciate, you know, uh, don't go and stand near the tallest, biggest tree. <laughs> um they need to be careful for, um, you know, the splatter strike or the strike that will uh, come from lightning that hits a tree and then uh, the perimeter around that tree. So really an area of lower density um, bush is the safest area to be and obviously clear of ridge lines. Um, we've had a lot of issues in the past because we've asked runners to abandon their poles. <laughs> yeah. um, that's something that runners are... Um, very reluctant to part with and I can absolutely appreciate why because I know what a set of carbon fiber black diamond poles costs um but at the same time you know we often get pushback and people saying oh but are the carbon fiber ones okay or my ones have got this and my ones have got that and I think the thing that people need to appreciate is when we activate this lightning protocol there is no time to be having debates with people about what brand their poles are and what what they're manufactured out of yeah um and you know we're not doing it to be nasty we just need to be able to institute a blanket policy so that we can ensure the safety of everybody because there will be people out there who don't know what their poles are manufactured out of yeah yeah and we can't guarantee that folding up the pole and storing them high in your backpack um is going to offer you any further protection than if you were running along and using it in in you know as as a as a hiking pole so really the safest thing just to do is just to put them aside and take shelter and make sure that you steer clear of your poles until that period of the storm has passed um, and we can get everybody up and moving again. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit about this on one of the other episodes. I think we've gone into it a bit more detail today. But I think the privilege of being afforded the opportunity to go out and do a trail event somewhere wild with, with people to look at, out for you is it is a privilege and if people are chasing cutoffs and they're suggesting that I can't stop to be held up by the lightning because I'm going to miss my cutoff and then I'm going to be held out of the event, well, that's got to be factored in because it is an, it's an unpredictable environment when you go out into the wild. It's not like you're doing a road marathon where, you know, really it's up to you to run the marathon because there's not really much that can go wrong. Actually, a lot can go wrong. So, all of these factors play into whether you have a good day out there or not, and you know it's the luck of the it's the luck of the weather. But all we can do is implement plans that keep you safe, and sometimes that means you're going to need to put your poles down, hopefully at an aid station yeah. or with a with a volunteer. But it might be you know next to a tree, and you might have to go back and get them tomorrow or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I'll say to people, look, if you if we do ask you to ban your poles, then just check your GPS coordinates on your watch. Everyone's wearing a watch these days, or they've got their phone with them. So just check your coordinates, take a note of it, and you can go back and get them the next day or the day after, or whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, um, when I did my training, I uh, 
I heard a fantastic, a really, really wonderful lecture, and I'll, I'll, um, I'd like to share it with you once I can find the link to his details. But Dr. Will Smith, who is um, not the Will Smith. I was going to say, <laughs> the Fresh Prince. <laughs> yeah, I know, not the Fresh Prince. Um, Will Smith is a phenomenal um, wilderness um, medical expert, and he uh, operates the lead search and rescue in the Grand Tetons. Mm. Um, and I uh, was fortunate enough to attend a really fantastic lecture um, by himself on lightning protocol and activation of lightning protocol and the safety parameters. And he described in detail um, uh, an event where there was 20 people in the Grand Tetons um, that were struck by lightning and it was people travelling in a group. Um, And, of course, Mm. one of the things that we, which I failed to mention before with lightning protocol is you shouldn't be travelling in groups. You shouldn't be travelling next to each other. Um, And what we will always advocate to people is we want you to get to safety, obviously. We want you to try and get to shelter. If you can get to a vehicle, get in the vehicle with the windows up. Don't have the windows down. Um, That's a fairly safe place to be in a lightning storm. Um, But if you are travelling on foot and you're needing trying to move to an area that's relatively safe, then you need to distance yourself from the person in front of you and the person behind you. Try and keep them within eyesight, but try and have at least 20 to 30 metres in between Mm. you. Um, so that you've still got that visual on each other, but so that if one person is hit by, um, you know, splash lightning or uh, a lightning strike, uh, it's not a multi-casualty um, occurrence and, and you might be the person who can save their life. So yeah. that's one of the things that, um, you know, forms part of our lightning protocol that we educate runners about. But, I- yeah, this, this lecture that I attended with him was, was really quite phenomenal and he talked about the process of reverse triage in a lightning strike. Mm. Um you know, typically in a mass casualty event, those people who present as um, as dead, in effect, um, will be, you know, obviously left off and they're not, uh, they don't become a triage priority. But in the lightning strike, um, those people who are unconscious, unresponsive are the first people that you will go to, um, you know, whereas the other people who might still, they're still conscious, they're still breathing, but they might have perhaps an exit burn or, or you know, they might be suffering a bit of an arrhythmia from the effect of the lightning um, you can you'll you'll move them further down your triage pathway because you'll go to the unconscious unresponsive first. So yeah, yeah, awesome. a really interesting lecture. We'll have to look that one up. Right? <laughs> and yeah, I think that at the start there you mentioned about the bushfire um, risk in in the Australian bush, and I think that's one that really because I think I've been on both of the the lightning protocol events or the events where there've been lightning protocols with you, Deb, and. It, the, I have to admit that was the first thing that struck me was the lightning protocol was called. We were thinking about lightning, but straight away there was a group within our team that was instantly looking for bushfire and talk, yeah. you know actively talking about looking for and smelling, trying to smell for smoke, like putting out other campfires so that they weren't distracting from the potential ability to identify an actual fire at that point in time. And and um, I think that that's something that you know the the um, possibility whether it's because of the lightning or because of the high winds that usually accompany mm. a lightning storm with tree coming down and that sort of thing. Like yeah. it's just extreme weather that can mm. bring all sorts yeah. of factors that can um, impact you. Mm, absolutely. I remember the last time we activated it, I was at... Um, at uh, Halkwa? Uh, yeah, I was at Halkwa Hut, that's right. And I felt the aura. The strike was that close to us that, you know, there's there's a preceding aura and that static electricity and the static was standing up on my, my arm. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as I felt that static, there was a group of people who I'd been standing there arguing with because they were reluctant <laughs> to abandon their poles and wanting to continue on course. 
And then just instantly every hair stood up on the back of my neck and I went, put those down <laughs> in the politest possible way that I could and get under the shelter of the hut. Um, and, yeah, we put our fires out so that we could, you know, and, and we had two guys patrolling the area just looking for signs of smoke and strike because the, the ground was as dry as a chip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah that, that was the big thing. So, and I think that's something that people don't think about. And the other one, Deb, I think, I mean, we could talk all day about all the ins and the outs, but the other probably big one in, in the events that we do in, in Australia is the heat policy stuff and, and just how quickly how quickly things can go sideways from a heat exposure point of view. Yeah, um, they're the big days for us. They're the busy days. They're when people they start are. getting into trouble. Yeah, they're the, they're, they are my worst nightmare, the heat-related <laughs> illnesses, because um, it's 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 usually a lot easier to warm people up than it is to try and cool people down unless you've got a river. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, it can, it, yeah, heat-related illness is something that we're going to start to, you know, the racing period in, in Australia kind of usually there's some sporadic events from, say, June through to September, October, um, but then it really kicks off in November and November and December, um, November in particular is a really loaded calendar. Um, and then it kind of moves on January, it kind of dies off and then it picks up again, you know, for the severe heat of January, there's not much yeah. going on or there's just some shorter events going on. Um, but then look at the moment. I mean, who knows? You could have a 40 degree day in the tail end of March. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, um, can, yeah. The seasons have just phenomenally changed. And we've been at, you know, guys, we've been at events where one minute we're in all of our snow gear and you can't possibly get enough layers on. And, you know, 20 minutes later we're in shorts and singlets. So mm. um, and, it's a real, the, the contrast in climate is a really difficult thing to manage. And I think and it's heat related illness in particular. And as you say, Deb, I think for um, an athlete um, competing, when if if they're getting you know the onset of cold is relatively obvious to them, but the onset yeah. of of heat stress can seem just like you know just the fatigue of the activity, not and and knowing that it seems to me that them understanding the point where actually this is no longer just tolerating and the mm-hmm. the suffering of 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 being in an endurance event, this is actually now a medical situation is a is a much harder line for people to kind of see I think. That's absolutely right. And look, Alice could probably attest to the fact that one of the key indicators of heat-related illness is you start to get some neurological deficits. Mm. Yeah, we've talked about how difficult it is to differentiate between what's going on with the person. Often they're a little bit out of it, they're a bit spaced out, they're not making good decisions, Um, they're hot, they're tachycardic. Um, At that stage, you're looking at heat-related illness, you're looking at dehydration, you're looking at hyponatremia, it could be anything. And it's it's not until you stop them and assess them and track their obs over time that you get an idea about where where their homeostasis is and where they're at right right now and which way they're going. Um, Often people Mm. don't want to stop too when they're racing. So... You know, we've we've said over three episodes now, often it doesn't take long to stop, have an assessment so we can make a plan with you and you can successfully finish your race or if it's not safe for you to go on that we actually get to stop you for a bit longer um, to keep you safe. But it's really difficult to tell when someone comes in looking exhausted. And the nice thing I wanted to bring you up on before, when you're talking about the race directors and their relationship with the volunteers, often the volleys are the people that first see the person that doesn't look good and so the person that doesn't look good gets shipped our way over to the med tent and then we can get a, 
a good look at them in terms of their observations. But yeah, we need the volleys often to be the first eyes sometimes. Absolutely. And so like none of the races would happen without the volleys. And that's a really, really good point, Alice is, yeah, just those volleys. And sometimes it's just a case of we do a quick check and then we bounce them back to the volleys and the volleys give them a bit of TLC and some cool fluid or some warm or some warm soup or just wrap a blanket around them or a sleeping bag or something and and have a chat and keep an eye on them for us. And and we're forever grateful to the volleys for doing that because it, it almost... The volleys sometimes can become our surge capacity, can't they? Yep. Yeah. They often yeah. are. Yeah. But, yeah, heat-related illness, yeah, it, it is a really, really tricky one to manage. And there is very little that runners can do to self-manage heat once they're out there. Yeah. Once you're out there and you're hot and you're moving, um, I mean, apart from keeping your head covered, people don't, st- you know, th- there's still some reluctance there for people <laughs> to keep their head covered. They still seem to think that, oh, too hot for a hat, but... <laughs> you know, keeping your head covered and trying to optimise that shade, um, you know, just getting that evaporative cooling happening on your skin, yep. keeping a shirt on, yeah. <laughs> not taking shirts off, yep. um, just very simple things. Not getting burnt, like having yeah, cream sunburn. at the start of the day. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, not getting burnt, making sure you've got that appropriate cover on. And, you know, if if just training in that heat if you've got that opportunity to there's a lot of people who don't train for the conditions um testing all of your gear before you get out there on course and knowing what's available to you if you are a runner who typically runs particularly hot and you have a propensity to overheat there are things that you can employ you can employ um you know cooling um neck things neck bands and things like that so you can get that cooling type of technology and all you've got to do is a little bit of water out of your soft flasks Put it on that, put it around your neck, and then it'll sit near your carotid arteries and just help to get some yep. systemic cooling happening. So there's just some really simple techniques that runners can employ. But if runners don't know these things and they don't take that onus on uh, trying to um, acclimatise themselves and be prepared for the conditions themselves, then often when by the time they present to us, it's too late. Yeah. And yeah. once their body temperature gets up above 40 degrees, you lose that ability to self-regulate as well. So someone will stop sweating and you'll stop being able to cool yourself down. So you will need to, you know, seek help and we will need to cool you down Mm. so you get to at least 39 and then you'll be able to, you know, regulate yourself and we'll be able to get a better idea about where you're at. But, yeah, once you get too far, you actually do do need assistance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where confidence in the medical team helps. And, you know, I I think that the team you have, Deb, are known by most of the runners, it seems, and so there's a general trust in that because that my experience, particularly with the heat stuff, is that people often are very unaware of the fact that they've gone past that threshold of being the able cues, to manage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, um, the if you, if people didn't listen to last week's episode or two weeks ago, um, we talked to Steph Gaskell, who her her area of expertise and research is in exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome. So when people start vomiting in, in the wilderness, that's not good. That's really mm. bad. So often they're dehydrated to start with and then they can't keep fluid down. And that's when we see people getting into trouble. And often in training, people find that they're actually fine. They manage to do their long runs and they have their nutrition plan. But when they go into racing, something changes. Steph does a really good job at telling us about the differences between the pathways of what generates these symptoms. So it can be that you get dehydrated and your gut doesn't get circulation or it can actually be a, a neuroendocrine stress response of doing a race. So sometimes mm. the stress of the race actually sets your gut off. Yeah. 
Uh, mm. So if people have trouble with their nutrition in the wilderness, yeah, go back and listen to Steph's. It was really good. Mm. Mm. And yeah, I, I've been that person before. I've I've done those long runs, and and I I typically always did my long runs and didn't eat at all. Yeah. But then I'd get into a race and I'd get to an aid station and go, oh, look at all this. Yeah. <laughs> what a, what it's a, the what buffet. <laughs> They've got snakes. Just, just, yeah. Oh, wow. Fantastic. And then the next thing you know, you're a couple of k's away from the aid station going, oh, <laughs> don't feel so crash hot. <laughs> Although now after COVID, I think that's, I don't, I don't know anyone's going to be eating stuff that they haven't packed for themselves anymore. I don't know how yeah, that's going to work. we've got the little COVID safe bags. People pick up their snack packs on the God. way through. Yeah. It's going to change. It's certainly, good. it's changed everything, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. Hey, Deb, yeah. I mean, we could talk about that stuff all night. The one one area I wanted to talk about, because I know it's it's a really important one, is the mandatory gear, and we've mentioned that in a couple of episodes. But um, it, it, it's oh, if, if there's ever a bit of contention, point of contention, it's around that, it seems, with, with people not, not identifying the need for it and, and how it's arrived at. Um, I guess, you, you know, you would have as much experience carrying mandatory gear when you're running yourself as well as, uh, you know, enforcing it and, and, mm. um, and making sure it gets enforced, I suppose. Um, yeah. Critical bits of kit that you think um, people undervalue, what are they? Uh, look, if I could start by – myself and several race directors could probably start by giving you the list of horror stories. <laughs> <laughs> you know, things that people have done to try and um, dodge mandatory gear. Um, I think most recently we had someone who cut 100, like maybe 100 millimetres off their snake bandage to just try and save a little bit of extra weight. Oh, my so, God. Uh, they cut know, their ponytail off as well? you know, pull that person up and describe to him the reason that it is the designated length is because it needs to go down your limb and back up again. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I really wasn't quite sure how the amount of snake bandage that he was proposing to carry was going to do the job. But, yeah, it's absolutely you, – you can't go anywhere in the Australian wilderness without a snake bandage. Yeah, you take a few in my experience. The, the listeners can't see few. this, but Dev started scratching her head as soon as she said that. Yep. You really can't go <laughs> out in the bush without a snake bandage, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You just have to have a snake bandage. That that That's a non-negotiable um, and, and – that's that's mandatory kit that you if if we catch you dodging that you're out. Um, I have to be hard and fast on that one. Yeah. And it's not just about you only having enough for yourself. It's about you being able to provide assistance to another runner who you might come across who yeah. has gone down as well um, and needs your um, needs your help. So and that and that is the un, unwritten law of trail running is that you help your fellow runner. Yeah. Um, so absolutely, snake bandage number one, non-negotiable. A lot of races mandate that you have a survival blanket. Um, I wouldn't say no to a survival blanket, but I there are much better products out there that I think we should start gravitating towards. Um, what would you, you take, Debbie? A bivy bag? Bivy bag, yeah. A bivy bag, yeah. And so a little um, – mm. one of the brands that I know of is Sol, uh, ah, S-O-L. Yeah, so they're made of the same stuff, but they're in the shape of a bag. The little they're exactly, the foil they're in the shape of a bag, yeah. Jump in it. Yep. So I don't know if, you know, I'm sure a lot of us have tried to either at the start or finish line of an event might have pulled out the safety blanket and tried to wrap it around us, but, but you're not enclosed. You're not creating a cocoon and that's not, it's not going to trap anything into you. If you're um, out on the trail and you're already wet, 
and you you know your your clothing soaked through with sweat or anything else like that and you get yourself into a really cold predicament or you become immobile and you can't keep moving the best thing to do is to try and get that survival blanket or that safety blanket next to your skin yeah right um, you know, instead of having that over the top of your wet gear, um, you're still going to radiate heat and lose a lot of heat um, and have a, some evaporative cooling going on through that sweat that's on your clothing. So, But it can be very difficult to do that, um, whereas if you just have a bivy bag, which for the sake of just a couple of extra grams in terms of what you're carrying, they don't occupy that much space, mm. but just a couple of extra grams in terms of what you're carrying, if you become immobile, you can get yourself into this and you can survive a night in this thing. Yeah. Um, so right, be because awesome. you're, you're effectively wrapping yourself up like a roast chook. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly right. Yeah. So I, I think, I, and I, I do kind of tr- ask race directors now if they can start to think about uh, moving or transitioning people towards having a bivy bag as mandatory gear versus a safety blanket. And, so um, they're the two absolute staples the, for me. The and then the other kits of mandatory gear is really dependent upon the time of year, the likely environment and, you know, and, where you're running. And it can change, can't it? On the morning of an event, suddenly it goes from being a, a reasonable fair weather day event to cold weather it could kit, be cold you know? and someone might get stuck overnight and suddenly straight away an extra layer gets added into the mandatory kit and people just need to be prepared and, and know what... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen people climbing up Mount Hotham and Mount Feathertop, um, you know, trying to get their mobile phone passed off as their headlight. (laughs) (laughs) That is not going to cut it. So, um, Especially when it's so cold, it goes off. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, I think if mandatory gear is there, it's been put there for a reason and it's been debated. You can guarantee that the race directors and the medical crew have debated on it and discussed it. And, yep. you know, for good reason, um, it's been it's been nominated as, as part of Essential Kit. And realistically, as a runner, be fair to the race directors. They're doing everything they can to put this race on for you. They have, um, you know, due diligence and they have um, a duty of care and they do need to make sure that they're seen as doing everything they can to maintain safety and mitigate risk. And if that means carrying 500 extra grams, then just chalk it up as extra mm. weight training and just get out there yeah. and do it and do your bit. And everyone's carrying it, so. Yeah, everyone's yeah. carrying it, yep. That's it. All right. Well, maybe we'll uh, segue in and get our uh, key takeaways. It's been fascinating. Yep. I hope you've been incredibly generous this evening. Um uh, this is a moment for us to do a couple of wraps up ourselves. But from your point of view, is there any you know lasting experience or, or really notable um, point that you'd like to make around um, you know your experience of, of running this team in in the wilderness um, that, that that really sticks with you? Just the key thing that sticks to me is the lifelong friendships that I've been able to gain out of it. I don't really see this as a job. I have to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and I, I don't know that many members of the team do either. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's our social outings. It's, it's us doing what we love. Um, we're out running, we're in the bush and we're surrounded by like-minded people. So yeah, I think for me, um, just very, very fortunate to be able to combine all of those things together. Um, and yeah, I certainly hope that everything that we're doing is, um, 
is helpful and beneficial for the trail running community and the running community in general. Yeah, oh, it combines a lot of things we all love. And I mean, you're a nurse in in your normal life. You work with um, people that get themselves into all sorts of difficulties. Um, and I think trail running is the same. So you, there's never a dull race. I think there's no. always things that happen that we don't think, we don't predict would happen, little derailers that happen, whether it's with with the event itself, with the communications team, with part of our team, um, little incidents with the runners. There's always something, and I love the initiative that always comes in. There's always people that bring up solutions to these problems. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very true. Yeah. Well, what about you, Doc? Key takeaway for the night? Um, I well, I, I was really pleased that we could we could get Deb to talk through some of this stuff because she really does have a unique perspective on things. I think sometimes you don't know what you don't know, and I think because you've got all of those experiences. And, and you've you've managed the critically ill person in a controlled environment, which is the hospital, and then you've also been able to recognise what that looks like in the wilderness. You've set together um, the mass incident response team. You've done some training around that, so you understand chain of command and resource management and all that sort of stuff. You've managed your team and the environment. So I think really we've just been able to to go on a journey with Deb and find out, you know, how, how this has all come about. Communication is the big one that you said about five times tonight, um, more than. And I think that yeah, that's absolutely I just, yeah, key. I keep saying it and I keep saying <laughs> yeah. it and I keep saying it, but it, it just plays such a massive role. Um, yeah. yeah. I think it, but in, 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 in my hospital life as well. Yeah. Yep. In everything really. And yeah. I've got to say. It seems only as good as your ability to communicate. Yeah, hundred percent. And um, I, I've got the four, maybe six C's that came out tonight around your team, Deb. Uh, common sense, critical thinking, calm under pressure, communication, chain of command, and capability. And oh, those Bill. things, those things kept <laughs> what coming up. Beautiful, perfect. And uh, I just think the you way take on the notes. <laughs> well, they stood out. They stand out like you know, dogs. Yeah things and um I, I think that really comes through strongly deb and and i know you said there around you know you don't see it as a as a job and i don't think anyone who works with the team sees it as a job but is is run as professionally as any organization in in this sort of an environment would and it attracts some incredible human beings as you've said uh who, are, who gravitate towards that because of the rewards of of working in an environment where they feel valued, I think, you know, my observation coming into trail running, not as a runner, but as a, as a supporter of someone who loves to run, um, is the, um, (laughs) the community that comes in around that and, and the, the reward that your team gets from the community, but that they get from working within this team and being part of it. Um, and it's a real credit to you and, and Jared as to what you've set up, um, and a massive privilege for, for all of us. And it's been a privilege to chat to you about it tonight. Um, Thank you very much for coming on board. Thank you so much. I miss it so much now. I want to get out there tomorrow. (laughs) Well, it's part of what we're doing in lockdown. We're looking forward to it. I know. We all do. We all do. Well, it's been great tonight, Doc. Um, Thanks for another one. That wraps up our three for the moment on Wilderness, but no doubt we'll come back. We'll put some links in for um, EMS um, for people out there, particularly for any race directors or the like who are looking for amazing medical support. We can. And, and Deb, thanks once again, mate. Good on you, Deb. And thank you to you both on a great podcast.